My name is Colleen and I'm 90 years old. Hi, I'm Michelle and I'm 60 years old. We're together on lockdown, mum and daughter. Stay safe, everyone. And stay home, out of trouble. And I love you all, every bit of you, every all of you. Kia ora, Colleen. Kia ora, Michelle. So lovely to hear from you guys. I hope you both had a restful break over Easter. I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the RNZ Coronavirus Podcast. Later in this episode, we're going to hear the latest on the science of COVID-19, including whether people who recover from infection become immune to the virus. But first, let's get to the headlines. 622 people were caught by police breaching the lockdown over the long weekend. The vast majority were let off with a warning, but 64 people are being prosecuted. For the past two weeks, police have been taking what they call an education and encouragement approach to breaches. But Assistant Commissioner Richard Chambers says things will get stricter from now on. We also saw four new deaths from COVID-19, bringing our total toll to five people. Our thoughts go to their friends in Farno and to everybody who has lost a loved one during the lockdown. We know it's an even more difficult experience than usual with the restrictions on visiting people in their final days and on attending funerals or tangi. All but one of the people who died over Easter were residents at the Rosewood Rest Home in Christchurch, which cares for people with dementia. The other death was a man in his 80s who attended a wedding in Bluff, which has become one of New Zealand's largest COVID-19 clusters. It's linked to more than 80 cases of the virus. Speaking yesterday, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said the deaths were a tragedy, but also a timely reminder. While overall case numbers have continued to fall, even one case can become many. Our clusters have shown that. Their simple act of coming together for a social occasion, something that previously would have been considered normal, can lead to more than 80 cases, as we have seen. And even more deadly is if the virus reaches people in vulnerable communities, like rest homes and aged care facilities, where three of our five deaths have occurred. We've been lucky to date that the virus is not evident in some of our communities where people often live in close quarters and in larger numbers, but that too poses a risk. If lockdown is lifted before, we have firm evidence the virus is under control and that there isn't silent community transmission. As the Prime Minister mentioned, the number of new cases stayed low over the weekend, with just 19 cases reported yesterday. The Director-General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, says that's partly explained by a drop in testing over the long weekend. Just over 1,600 people were tested on Sunday. That's less than half the usual number. What's more significant is the positivity rate. That's the percentage of people tested for COVID-19 whose results come back positive. The positivity rate is just over 1%, uh, even with those lower number of tests. So that's encouraging. Uh, However, we will be looking at the regional, uh, the testing happening in each each region and looking to see if we can up that testing over this coming week just to be sure we're not missing cases and possible community transmission across the country in different regions. Jacinda Ardern also outlined the government's agenda for the coming week. Later today, we're expecting the Treasury to release a number of scenarios for the potential economic impacts of COVID-19, although she warned that it's a tricky time to be in the prediction business.
Um, this is a situation that, of course, is very hard to forecast what the future will look like, particularly when we're right in the middle of it. And so much will depend, for instance, on the length of time that we spend at different levels. One thing I think I'll also just foreshadow is that we um, are, of course, um, part of a global pandemic. And therefore, we are going to be a part of a global economy that is going to take a significant hit from COVID. So regardless of how we might do domestically, there will be that knock-on effect that we will only ever be able to do as well as the rest of the world, um, given our, our status as a uh, trading nation. The Prime Minister says the government would be announcing more support for businesses later this week and also some more detail on what life will look like under Alert Level 3 or two. That detail will include for businesses, for transport, for health, for recreation, for education. I understand the importance of this information for businesses and others to plan. Uh, and even though we'll be releasing that detail on Thursday, in between times in the lead up, we will be talking to sector leaders as we finalise some of the details around these different alert levels. And while we won't be getting the full details until Thursday, Ms Ardern gave this analogy when describing what Level 3 will look like. We should consider it a waiting room, a place we move to that allows a bit more activity to occur, but not so much that we risk losing all the gains that we have made. This is the place we go while we check that we have genuinely got things under control and that we are on track to stamp out the virus. That then allows us to make decisions around whether we are ready to move to Level 2. We still have at least another week at Level 4 to get through, and at least one model suggests the lockdown may need to be extended by a week or two beyond that. In the meantime, there is some good news. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has recovered from coronavirus after several days in intensive care. And he had a special shout-out in his first speech after leaving the hospital. I hope they won't mind if I mention in particular two nurses who stood by my bedside for 48 hours when things could have gone either way. They're Jenny from New Zealand, in Vicargill on the South Island to be exact, and Luis from Portugal near Porto. And the reason in the end my body did start to get enough oxygen was because for every second of the night they were watching and they were thinking and they were caring and making the interventions I needed. Jacinda Ardern echoed those thanks in her own press conference yesterday. We have thanked our frontline health workers in New Zealand many times, and rightly so. But I wanted to add an acknowledgement that many, many Kiwis work in healthcare around the world. They show the same commitment, same care, same work ethic that they do here, and we are all very proud of them especially of you, Nurse Jenny. And speaking of shout-outs for health workers, a petition has been launched to make Dr Ashley Bloomfield New Zealander of the Year. As of this morning, it had about 2,000 signatures. Some Kiwis have petitioned for you to um, be New Zealander of the Year. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the only comment I would make is that um, uh, leadership is an invitation to collective action. Um, I'm lucky to be part of a fantastic team of people at the Ministry of Health and right across the public service and a fantastic country of New Zealanders who have accepted that invitation to collective action. So um, this is a joint effort. I can tell you he gets very humble if you play the song about him too. Just in case you haven't heard that song, here it is.
I'm stuck in isolation, but it's not so bad. Cause every day at one, I get to see my man. He's got blonde hair, he's got that face, he knows just what to say. The way he speaks makes me feel like it's gonna be okay. Dr. Ashley, won't you catch me? I wanna lay down and cuddle. If I had one wish, I would make it this. I'd be in your bubble, that's why this is for you. But I gotta say how I feel They say Ashley's a snack Oh But I want a Bloomfield meal This one's for you This melodica solo is for you Director General of Health, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield Alright everyone, everyone song currently has about 56,000 views on YouTube. We'll put up a link on the website. But the fame doesn't seem to be going to Dr Bloomfield's head. After finishing his daily press briefing, he was off to a live Q&A on Facebook, taking questions from the public, including this one. David asks, is it true that if you eat four onions a day, you can't get COVID-19? Well, I'd have to say, quite honestly, there is no evidence for or against. But one thing I can say is if you ate four onions a day, you would probably find it hard to get anyone inside your bubble to kiss you. Um, and uh, it may well be quite a, a tall ask to eat four onions a day. There might not be much evidence that eating onions protects you from COVID-19, but there is a huge amount of work being done all around the world to better understand this virus. Over the weekend, RNZ's Kim Hill spoke to Dr Chris Smith, consultant clinical virologist at Cambridge University and one of BBC Radio 5 Live's naked scientists. Kim asked Dr Smith about a study in South Korea which suggests COVID-19 can still be detected in people who've recovered from the virus. I'm a little bit cynical about these reports. I think probably they reflect the fact that the test isn't great and the way in which we're sampling people for the virus isn't perfect and so as a result we're generating false negatives. When we do these tests we take a swab from the nose and throat and what you're looking for are bits of material brushed off the nose and throat with virus in it because that material is then put into an extraction buffer 
This is a chemical that busts open cells and viruses and lets the genetic information come out. And the genetic information is then fed into a machine that copies the sequence of that genetic information millions of times. And then we can read the copies because we have enough of it there to look at. And you can see immediately the Achilles heel here is if you don't have enough virus there because you swab the wrong bit or it's present at just very low level, you might miss it. And this means that either very early on in a person's disease course, where they're going to have low levels of virus, you can miss it. And also once they're recovering and their immune system is removing the virus, you can miss it. So I suspect that where we're seeing these reports of, I'm not saying exclusively, but I think a significant number of cases where we're seeing reports where people are being called positive, they have the symptoms, they have the syndrome, and then they recover. People say, oh, you're fine now. And then they go back and look again and they say oh you're negative and then oh no it's back again I think some of that uh, probably a healthy proportion of that is that the test isn't particularly great but based on your knowledge of viruses in general you're fairly confident that having contracted COVID-19 once you will be immune for at least some time Yes, I'm very convinced of that. And we've got quite good experimental evidence, both from people, but also from animals, because researchers have now got animal models. They've been putting the virus into monkeys. They've also now, there's a paper in the journal Science this week, where they've actually begun to challenge other animals with the infection to see how they fare. And we know that in the monkey model, and also in humans, you get a very similar trajectory in these monkeys to what humans get and you infect them they get a similar syndrome and then they recover and if you look in the bloodstream you can find evidence that the immune system has mounted an effective response it's made antibodies and those antibodies have neutralized the virus and they become virus negative you can't detect virus in them anymore and if you then go back and look later you can find those antibodies are still there and you can take samples of those antibodies and demonstrate that they neutralize the virus now they've not taken it out to a very long time point though this is the the constraint of this study at the moment because this is a brand new virus it's not like they've been able to do these experiments and then wait six months and retest the animals we've only known about the virus for a short time so the longest time point reported at the moment is about a month but we know it's still at a month there is a protective immune response still there so i'm confident that people who are fighting this off are making neutralizing antibodies that will give them at least short-term protection there's no reason why they won't get long-term protection but we do know that some coronaviruses are fickle and when you get infected or an animal gets infected with them the immune response can wane under certain circumstances and, and return an individual to susceptibility. Now that's an important question that needs to be answered and as we go through this and we get more data and more examples of people having caught it recovered and then being followed up I'm, I'm sure we're going to get answers to this question quite soon. The long-term immunity, though, has not been scientifically established. We're just keeping our fingers crossed on the basis of what we know. Yeah, for the moment. Um, and we have some experience with coronaviruses because this uh, is one of seven that are known to infect humans. There are four which were circulating and we previously regarded them as just benign seasonal infections they cause coughs and colds and they affected a few percent of the population every year and we, we've thought for, thought of them as as just mild infections we have some experience therefore of what they do to us we have some experience of what they do to our immune system and we tend to to be able to say well look you make antibodies against those so we're confident that there will be an immune response but what we don't know is with this new beast this new coronavirus is it going to follow that 
behaviour? Or are the antibody titers going to wane over time, which other members of the coronavirus family seem to, to do sometimes? So time will tell, but at least in the short term, we're confident that people are mounting an effective immune response when they recover, and that's protecting them. How much of a problem do you think these asymptomatic cases are going to be? Probably a big problem, and we don't know how many of them there are yet. Um, I was listening to Sir Patrick Valance, who's the UK's chief scientific officer, and one of the points he made was that we, we don't know for sure, but they may make up a third of the case burden, up to a third, maybe even higher. But we're not going to know yet because until we get some serological assay where we can test people for antibodies and we can say, yes, you've had this infection, now what symptoms have you had? And people then say, well, I haven't had any, we won't know for sure. The the numbers, you know, there is some lack of certainty about this because a good study group is the people who were evacuated from Wuhan and the Japanese have published a case series where they've published data from people who were evacuated, asked, have you got any symptoms? And they were followed up and tested and a significant, not a huge number, but a significant proportion, probably um, I think it was down, you know, single numbers of percent, 10%, something like that, uh, reported that they didn't have any symptoms, but they did have evidence of being infected with this new coronavirus and they were a range of ages and backgrounds and previous pathologies and so on so it's not a given that um, you're young and you'll be asymptomatic it's not a given that you'll be old uh, and have more symptoms it's a range and very very difficult to predict and we're going to probably need some biomarkers or some way of teasing out based on making measurements of a person, how they're likely to behave when they interact with this coronavirus. And people around the world are now beginning to do that. They're beginning to, to study samples from people before they got infected and then looking at the clinical course and what happened to that person and asking, are there any fingerprint chemical changes here or molecules that we can measure that will tell us who are, who are going to be the ones who get a mild infection who are going to be the ones that get a severe infection because arguably that sort of test would be very valuable as well because we then know who to keep an eye on. No, I, I keep coming back to this thought and I, I, I suspect you've dealt with it already but I'm going to put it to you again. If there are lots of people asymptomatic who have contracted the virus but are not laid low by it in any way, the fatality rate, the ratio of death to infection would, would look a great deal better than it does if you take the asymptomatic people out of the equation. Yes, it absolutely would. And in fact, that's what people like me are banking on, the fact that um, the case fatality rate looks artificially high or higher than perhaps it really is because what we don't know are the people that have had it and we don't know they've had it, so we're not including them in our calculation. What I'm hoping that we're going to find is that uh, actually a lot more people are catching it, catching it in a benign way, and uh, and uh, therefore not being tested. And in fact, if we do get those numbers, we'll find that the case fatality rate is much lower. But if that's true, Chris, have we not turned ourselves into North Korea for the sake of a virus that is more often than not benign? Well, I don't think you can look at the death rates and say, well, there are now 10,000 people nigh on dead in Britain um, who weren't dead a month ago 
and um, and say it's it's but you know it's business as usual. I think there's clearly something going on, and we've we've clearly got a problem here. I don't think we are overreacting in the extreme, but we are going to have to work out a way out of this. And this is the the big thing we've realised. You know, people people have realised that this is not going to go away. It's not going to go away overnight. And other countries like Singapore, for example, are having resurgences where they've relaxed a bit, and they're seeing a return of cases. And so it's clear that uh, it's not a simple case if you do this for a while and then go, phew, that's got that over with, back to business as usual, because it will be back and, and it will prey on those susceptible people again. So we've got to have some kind of manoeuvre ready now. We've bought ourselves time, we've suppressed levels down. Um, we now need to work out who those most susceptible, who those vulnerable people are. And even if they are only you know, a tiny fraction of the population, it still matters. And therefore working out who they are and how to keep them away or protected while we sort out a longer term strategy is, is, a, is a target. Because what that means is that we can then work out if we know everyone else can be reassured and they'll be OK, we can let that lot go back to work perhaps in stages so that we don't get huge great surges in disease activity because there will still be people in the group we let go back to work and so on who will become victims they'll get severely unwell just by chance if you look at the stats we've got already so therefore we we need to do this in a managed way but until we have those numbers and have more data it's going to be really difficult to inform that strategy do we <laughs> end the lockdown which is what we all want and not end the lockdown because what we fear is another surge. How do we make that call? Uh, this is what everyone is struggling with and no politician will answer the question and the reason they won't answer the question is because they don't know. I think currently the strategy that people are thinking along the lines of is probably a staged re reduction of the lockdown and this will be supported by intense surveillance and what I mean by that is what you'll do is ramp up testing capacity. We use the suppression measures to get down the amount of virus circulation in the population to a really low level. You then allow the people at the lowest risk to go back to work or back to school. And you make sure that you keep the people who are at most risk shielded while all this is going on. So it's still not very good news for them because they're going to continue to suffer in silence and be lonely. And we all feel for these people because they're really going stir crazy now. And it's only been two weeks and we're talking about months. But basically what that will achieve is it will mean that the economy can operate a bit industries can operate a bit the youngest people who are probably being hardest hit who have probably been laid off etc can get back into some semblance of work and if there is low grade spread through that group which there almost certainly would be it wouldn't matter so much because they're less likely to have bad outcomes they're less likely to then overwhelm healthcare services and once we've got a sufficient level of herd immunity then we can evaluate whether or not it's safe to to let the people who are more vulnerable out again um that that is the somber message we're getting at the moment which may be the only way out of this because a, a vaccine is quite frankly not even this side of the horizon yet that was dr chris smith talking to kim hill on the saturday morning program to listen to the full interview go to the saturday morning page at rnz.co.nz also, remember if you want to ask a question or make a comment or share your own experience, you can do that through RNZ's Vox Pop app. It's free to download and easy to use. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Kā ki te koe a popo, kia kia kaha. 
The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang and Sonia Sly. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz.